0: Proverbs 13, verse 23. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Father, tonight uh, we pray that as we think about this passage, as we think about your will for us and your will for the poor of this world, that instead of their food being swept away, by us that injustice would be swept away and that hunger would be swept away and thirst would be swept away. God, that you'd speak to us tonight about your will for us and the goodness that you have shown us in Jesus and that you, therefore, urge us to show to others because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. Now, Mark and I in 2005 saw a perfect illustration, I think, of what Solomon is trying to say in this verse. We observed many things in southeast India that summer, but one of the things that we observed most clearly was Proverbs 13:23 in action. Because everywhere we looked... We saw abundant food, potential for food that wasn't being taken advantage of. It wasn't being used. And we saw that the reason why it wasn't being used was injustice. Everywhere we looked, we saw abundant food seemingly in the fallow ground of all these poor people. And yet it was being swept away by injustice. There were hungry, poorly fed, needy people everywhere we went. And it was sad. We looked out on these people and thought, why in the world is it like this? And I think that we began to realize that the poverty that was there was not because there was a lack of sustainable food or water or those kinds of things, but because this was a Proverbs 13:23 kind of poverty that we were witnessing. Again, it wasn't that there was no available source of food or income for the people. There was abundant food, just as Solomon speaks about here. The problem was that the system in that country kept the common people from having that food that was so abundant. So the food that was so abundant was swept away before the people could actually take advantage of it. There were, for instance, everywhere we went, cows and water buffaloes, far more populous than we even see squirrels and things like that here. Just everywhere, cows and water buffalo. Plenty of meat for people to eat. But an unjust and untrue religious system, Hinduism, prevents people from being able to eat that meat and to use the milk. And so the abundant food that is there and available for them is swept away by injustice. We also saw everywhere we went rich farming soil. Farmland was plenteous in India Food and income right there in the soil for the masses. And yet all that farming land was controlled by wealthy rice farmers and by an unjust social system in which normal people don't and could never have that farmland or a little small piece of it for their own. And in a system in which jobs working for those wealthy farmers pay the people a pittance. And so it was true again. Abundant food was there and it was being swept away from the people because of an unjust culture. And then we looked around and everywhere we saw there were coconut trees with coconuts hanging there and falling off rotten, not being used, and pomegranate trees and other kinds of fruit trees. And very few people were using any of these things either. we thought, well, they can't eat the cows. They have to work in the rice fields and they can't have farmland of their own. So why don't they at least eat these things that just grow everywhere? And I don't know the answers for that, but I suspect that the reason why they don't, why they just leave this food there to rot, is because, again, of injustice, namely this time an unjust government system whereby all of the people who live there, almost all the people in the entire nation of India, get handouts from the government every single month. You say, how is that unjust? Well, it contradicts Second Thessalonians 3.10, which says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And it contradicts common sense that tells us if a man works for his food, he develops a work ethic. A work ethic. He has dignity. There's a better way of living. And yet an unjust system that just hands things to people causes the people to be worse off than they might be. There's abundant food there laying in the fallow ground of these poor people and yet it's being swept away by cultural, religious, and government injustice. And the truth of the matter in India and in many other places is that though it's not an overnight fix, Solomon is reminding us here that the poor don't have to be poor. Poverty is not a necessary evil. Poverty most often is a result of injustice. The poor don't have to remain poor. I think that's what Solomon is trying to tell us in Proverbs 13, 23, and to urge us to do something about it. The poor, for the most part, don't have to be poor. It's not a necessary evil. There's abundant food, he tells us. Abundant food. People aren't usually poor. Wherever you go in the world for lack of resources, for lack of land, that will produce things. Sometimes that's true, but most of the time there's food there, or the capability of there being food there. Or when we think about Nigeria and the water problem, there's water there. It's just that the government has come in and told the people they'll bring them water, and then it doesn't work, and so the people are left without what we take for granted and what's so necessary for life. There is abundant food in the fallow ground of the poor. And that's the problem. The problem is not that there's no food. The problem is that the ground is fallow, that the resources lie unused, like fallow ground on a farm that isn't being sown in anything. And the reason why the resources that would help the poor lie fallow or unused, Solomon tells us, is injustice. Sometimes government injustice, sometimes societal injustice, sometimes religious injustice. But one way or the other, the poor, for the most part, don't have to be poor. It's not a necessary evil, but they are that way because of injustice that keeps them that way. Now, someone may say, okay, the poor don't have to be poor. That's not necessarily uh, a a social evil that is just uh, obvious. Someone may object to that and say, well, I don't know if I agree with that, that the poor don't have to be poor, that there really is a solution, an obvious, easy solution, and that is to just sweep away injustice. And so I want to answer a few objections that, that you may have or that you may at least think of or that someone may raise to you if you say, "Hey, poor people are out there, but it's crazy. There's no reason for it." People object to that sometimes. Here's the most common objection in America. People say many of the people that are poor are poor because they're lazy. They're poor because they're lazy. Now, I'll grant you that that is very true in some cases. I've seen people here suffer financially because they're lazy, and you have too. And we saw it in India as well. Men just sitting on the street corners doing nothing, and therefore suffering, and their families suffering because of laziness. But I also saw in India, and I see here as well, that sometimes... The reason why people are lazy is partially because the system around them encourages laziness or enables laziness. The system in India enables people to be lazy because everybody gets money from the government every month. And that's an injustice. It's robbing those people of their work ethic. It's robbing them of their dignity. It's robbing them of a God-given command to work so that you can eat. So it's not just about laziness. There's still injustice often that feeds that. person's still responsible if they're lazy, but injustice feeds that. And in addition, I would answer the objection about laziness to say that if we stepped outside of the United States, this kind of bubble that we live in where very few people are really truly poor, there may be people who have less than others, but there are very few people who are really truly impoverished here. If we stepped outside of our country into other countries we would see that laziness even government supported laziness is nowhere near being the primary cause for people's poverty the government causes the poverty or increases the poverty in other ways but laziness is not the main thing there are people all over the world who work hard and have nothing so we can't just say well you know we'll think about the poor but really they're poor because they're lazy that doesn't work The second thing that someone may say when I say, hey, people are poor, but it doesn't need to be that way. People that are poor don't have to remain poor. Someone would say, maybe that sounds like a little bit like socialism. Is is Solomon saying that, you know, the government makes people poor and so the government should then make people unpoor? That's not what Solomon is arguing here. Solomon is not saying that the government itself should pay anyone's bills or fill anyone's food pantry. After all, he tells us that the food... The abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. It's not in the government's fallow ground or in the government's warehouses. It's in the poor's fallow ground. He's not arguing for handouts. He's arguing for enabling people to do what God's called them to do, to work. So what he's saying here is simply that injustice should not keep people from providing for themselves. He's not talking here about socialism. He's talking about dignity. The third objection that someone might make would be, well, you know, you're saying that people don't have to be poor, that it doesn't have to be this way. But Jesus said in Mark 14, 7, you will always have the poor among you. But now you're saying that it doesn't, this doesn't need to be the case. And to that, I would say the reason Jesus said that you'll always have the poor among you is not because it's right That we'll always have the poor among us, but simply that it's true that we'll always have the poor among us. But the reason that's true, that there will always be poor people, is because there will always be injustice according to the scriptures until Jesus comes. There will always be sin in the world until Jesus comes comes. But just because Jesus acknowledged the perpetuity of injustice that then leads to poverty doesn't mean that he approves of it. And it doesn't mean that we should approve of it either. So any Christian that uses Mark 14, 14, 7, namely, you'll always have the poor among you. Any Christian who uses that to ignore as an excuse to ignore the poor needs to have his head examined because that's not what the Bible teaches And he needs more than that to have his heart examined. There will always be poor people, but it should not be that way. So the teaching, I think, stands. Solomon is is reminding us, though there will always be the poor among us, it should not be this way. And very often it is injustice that makes it so. Now, when we start thinking about injustice and how it contributes to poverty, the knee-jerk reaction is to think about governments. And I've already talked about the government some. To think about governments and their policies, they're sometimes unjust, their wasteful spending that's unjust, and all those things. And we're right to think about government. We're right to begin there because Solomon, remember, is a king. And Solomon is writing this book for us, yes, but first of all he's writing it to his son who would be king. And he's saying to his son and saying to himself, Son, don't put policies in place that prevent people from taking care of themselves, that prevent people from earning a living, that prevent people from being able to till their ground and produce a living off of it. So Solomon surely has government policy in the front of his mind when he writes this verse, and we should think about that. And what that means is any government system that robs its people of the opportunity to earn a living or that encourages them not to earn a living or that fleeces them when they do earn a living is unjust. Any of those things that a government does is unjust. It doesn't matter what they call it. It doesn't matter what background they're coming from. If they rob the people of the ability to earn or encourage them not to earn or fleece them of what they do earn, it's unjust and it falls under the condemnation of Of Proverbs 13.23 Now remember to be careful here. Solomon is not arguing and neither am I that the government is responsible for earning the people's money for them. Remember the fallow ground is not in the government's coffers or excuse me the abundant food is not in the government's coffers. The abundant food is in the ground of the people. So he's not encouraging us to tell the government to earn our living for us or to find our jobs for us or to give our land to us. Remember 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He who does not work should not eat. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Solomon here is simply reminding us that though the government's job is not to give, give, give to us, the government's job is also not to unjustly hinder or interfere with people fulfilling their God-given ability to work and to earn a living and to feed their families. And the reality is that many governments in the world do that. Many of them do it in various ways. We see it here in some ways. We see it in quite different ways on the other side of the planet. But when a government does that, it's unjust. So there's a word in Proverbs 13, 23 to the government and about the government. And we should make application of these things when we have the opportunity to impact policy and leadership, whether it's local or state or national. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor and it's swept away by injustice. And as far as you and I are able, we should hold our government accountable to heed this warning. And you need to think about that every time it's time to vote and when it's time to speak in the ways that are profitable and helpful to shape things in our country as well. But there are more applications to Proverbs thirteen twenty three than just the government, aren't there? We already pointed out that cultures can be unjust, aside from the government, and that religious systems can be unjust. And we know, of course, that the reason governments and cultures and religious systems are unjust is because individuals are unjust. And God is reminding us here in this passage that it's not just about the people out there, but it's the people in here that need to be careful about this injustice. And doesn't God teach us again and again and again as individuals and specifically as Christians that we are to do good for the poor? Not to treat them unfairly, not to take advantage of them, but to be good to them. Let me just remind you of a few places. In Matthew 6, verse 2, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, When you give to the poor, do it this way. That's not a command, but it's just an assumption. Jesus just makes an assumption. My people give to the poor, so let me tell them what they should do and how they should do it. When you give to the poor. He just assumes. Then in Luke 14, 13, He commands us, when you give a reception, Thanksgiving, Christmas, church meals, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And the crippled, the lame, and the blind in that culture would have been poor because they couldn't provide for themselves just as... Many of them cannot today. When you have a reception, invite the poor. Galatians 2.10 is maybe simplest of all. Give to the poor. And then there's Leviticus 19:9 9 and 10 that paints a picture for us of how that looked in the Old Testament. And I think uh, you can figure out ways that this applies to you. In Leviticus 19, Moses, um, speaking on behalf of God, said this, When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. The leftovers is the gleanings, the things that you drop in the field. Don't gather those. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord. So when you're harvesting your vineyard, and in our case, you know, the tractor, or excuse me, your your field, and the tractor cuts the corner and doesn't make a sharp... Turn, you just leave those pieces at the edge for the poor. And when you drop something, wheat or grapes on the ground, you leave that for the poor as well. That was just a practical way that God gave his people to make sure that they cared for the poor and for the needy. And he bookends it by saying, I am the Lord. In other words, this isn't just about the needy and the poor and the stranger. This is about me. You do this because I am the Lord. So God commands us, his people, not just the government, not even first of all the government, us, his people, to care for the poor, to feed the hungry, and so on. And if we fail to do it, then we are the ones that are being unjust. We're being unjust because God's told us to do something and we're not doing it. We've ignored Proverbs thirteen twenty three. if we do not care for the poor. So the problem of poverty is not always systemic Or governmental. Often it is. But it's not always systemic. It's not always governmental. Sometimes the problem of poverty is an individual and spiritual problem. Namely individuals and especially God's people not obeying his voice. And people suffer because of it. And even when the government does all that it should do. If you had the most just government in the world, there are still people who slip through the cracks. There are still people who cannot work as well. Even when we've set aside all the people that are poor because they're lazy, there are still a lot of people who can't work. Luke 14, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the orphans in James, the widows and other elderly people in James, the mentally handicapped and so on. And we... In the Old and New Testaments are the ones that God charges to care for these people. And on top of all of that, there are billions of people in the third world who, because of government and cultural and religious injustice, are poor in spite of their ability to work and in spite of the hard work that they put in. You might remember the Myanmar situation where they had this terrible disaster and the people needed relief badly. More than we can ever imagine. I mean, it would make any disaster that we've had in this country look like nothing. They needed relief badly. And do you remember what happened? It took days and weeks for the relief to get there because their government wanted to save face and prove that it could provide for its people on its own. So you had organizations like... Samaritan's Purse and government organizations and World Vision and so on, trying to get relief there, having it ready and not being able to get it there because of the government and the injustice that was there. And that happens all over the world. That was an obvious situation, but there are people all over the world because of the culture they're in, the government that leads them, or the religion that's practiced in their area who are impoverished. And they can do nothing about it unless someone comes and stands in the gap and rights the injustice for them and in spite of all that's going on around them. And we're the ones in the Scripture that are charged with doing that. Ultimately, ultimately, that happens. And I want you to hear this well. Ultimately, injustice is righted and the poor are no longer treated and maligned the way they are now. Ultimately, that changes when the gospel goes out. When the gospel goes out, individuals are changed. And when individuals are changed, cultures are changed. And when cultures are changed, governments are changed. And Christians are often appointed to government posts and can make policies that are just and right. And when the gospel goes out, unjust religious practices often are abandoned because those religions are being abandoned by people as they come to Jesus. Some of you may remember hearing about William Carey. He went to India with the gospel, and that was his main mission. But there were all sorts of social things, good things that happened in India for the poor because he was there preaching the gospel. Among them was that old people who were once taken down to the Ganges River and left there to die by their families, that was outlawed. You can't do that anymore. And the reason was because enough people started hearing the gospel, believing what Carrie said, and they said, this isn't right, there's got to be a different way, and they outlawed that. And that happens as the gospel goes out. So ultimately, the way that we fulfill this verse is by giving people the opportunity to hear the gospel and come to Jesus. However, in the meantime, because that doesn't happen overnight, cultures aren't changed overnight, Generally, though the gospel changes them truly, it happens slowly. And while that's happening slowly, while the gospel is slowly transforming whole cultures, the world over, we are at the same time as Christians to stand in the gap and right the injustices that continue by feeding the poor and by empowering them to feed themselves, to care for themselves. And I want to give you some real specific applications on how we sitting here in Cincinnati in October of 2009 can do that. But before I do, I just want to give you a word of commendation as a church family to say that you all have been doing this, serving the poor in a number of different ways. Just thinking about this year, I jotted some things down this afternoon. This year, roughly 1,000 breakfasts will be served by you at City Gospel Mission and paid for by you as you put money in the offering plate every week. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. You all supported a pastor in New York. His name is Don. You may remember that we took up a special collection for him. He's in a struggling small church in a rural resort town where there is no work for nine months out of the year. He has no other way to supplement his income, and you all supplemented his income by a special offering, and they were blessed and helped by that. Constantly, you and others in our church have kept our food pantry stocked. There have been times when it's gotten low and we thought maybe we're going to have to take some money out of the church budget to stock it. And we've not ever had to do that. And week by week, we provide food to one or two households every week and they get the gospel with the food too. Operation Christmas Child. We just announced it Sunday. It doesn't really even officially start until this coming Sunday. And the little box that we have out there is almost already full. And then I thought about Brian going to Kenya to spend a whole month of his life serving the poor medically and spiritually and how John and Ashley went in 2008. And they did that partially because you all gave and prayed and so on. And so... I believe God would say to you tonight, "Well done," on this Proverbs thirteen twenty three tr- truth. You all have taken verses like this one seriously, and as we go forward with some applications, I just want to say, "Well done," and keep it up. Relax, why? Because there's so much work still to be done, isn't there? A thousand meals a pastor helped the food pantry helping 50 or 100 families a year, 60 shoeboxes that go out, Brian to Kenya John and Ashley to Kenya. All that stuff is wonderful, but there's still so much more work to do, isn't there? Thankfully, the Lord has many people all over the world to do it, but we're part of them. And so we need to keep going, especially when we think about the third world and the poverty that's there. So some of you, maybe the, the encouragement tonight is just keep doing what you're doing. Some of you, the encouragement may be, I mean, I see people around me doing this. I haven't really kind of pitched in yet, and I need to get started. And for some of you, it may be that you've pitched in in the past, and you've kind of uh, forgotten about these things a little bit, and you need to get restarted. And for all of us, perhaps God will just freshen us tonight and remind us of these things and how good it is to serve others. And maybe He'll give us some fresh new ways of going about doing that as well. So... Now let me just list for you a number of ways, practical ways that you can put these things into practice that you can serve the poor yourself. And I wrote down kind of six broad ways, and a few of them I'll give you some bullet points underneath. How can you do this? How can you help the poor, serve the poor, feed the poor? Number one, feed the poor in your personal interactions, just in your day-to-day life. Have these biblical concepts in mind that God wants me to help those who are in need. So what about the guy at the bottom of the interstate exit? You know who I'm talking about. You all see him. What about the guy at UDF? I'm not asking you to give them money to go buy drugs, but can you can you go to off the interstate exit and go to Burger King and get a couple of sandwiches and circle back around and drop them off at the guy? Maybe what about the struggling family in your neighborhood or in whose dad or the dad or the mother works in your office? Maybe a Thanksgiving care package or something like that, um, gospel tract inside, but just meet their needs. And sometimes when you meet needs just with people you see on a daily basis here in Cincinnati, sometimes the reality is you're going to get taken advantage of, aren't you? Sometimes people are going to be scam artists sometimes they're going to be really hurting, and you don't always know the difference. So I find it just best to err on the side of generosity. And on top of that, even if the guy or the woman is a scam artist, you know what? God knows your heart, and God will reward your heart even if that person takes advantage of your money. So feed the poor in your personal daily interactions. Secondly, this will apply just to a few of you, but feed the poor in your work environment. Now... Some of that falls under personal interactions, but I'm thinking here about people, and this is just a few of you, and maybe some of you in the future will have this as well, but some of you are responsible for personnel-type decisions, for, for being in charge and for hiring people and their wages and all of that, and I find that in our kind of culture, if we're not a part of the government and we're not just out and out stingy, one of the easiest ways to fall foul of Proverbs 13.23 is to pay workers an unfair wage so that by your injustice you're sweeping away their food, their earning power. So if you're in that kind of position where you can pay or where you're supposed to decide someone's pay, be fair. Don't don't find yourself on the wrong end of Proverbs 13.23 just to kind of help you. You remember Scrooge from A Christmas Carol? Maybe you know him as an actor. Maybe you know him as a duck. But either way, if you remember Scrooge from A Christmas Carol, you'll remember what he was like and you'll remember how his worker, Cratchit, worked long, hard hours. And then there's that scene at their family Christmas dinner where they have almost nothing to eat. You remember that? And that's... In that story, Charles Dickens put that in that story obviously as an extreme example of the relationships between employers and employees. That's an extreme example. But there's a lot of truth there, isn't there, about how sometimes supervisors relate to those who work for them. They're unjust. Make sure that you don't end up on the wrong side of that equation. Thirdly, feed the poor by volunteering. We think about feeding the poor, you think, well, he's going to ask for my money. And I will. I'm not going to ask for it. I'm going to ask you to give it to other people. But before you get there, you know, it's not just your money that God wants. It's your time. Feed the poor by volunteering. Now, I want you to to, to picture what's happened over the last two, 300 years in our country and in the Western world. We have all these mercy ministries that are all around us, soup kitchens, food banks, thrift stores, homeless shelters, battered women's shelters, crisis pregnancy centers, all these things. And many of them, if not most of them, were begun by Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians. And some of them are still run by those people. But a good number of these kinds of organizations have somehow since been co-opted by liberal Protestants who don't believe the Bible anymore and who don't have the gospel anymore. And we've kind of allowed them to be the ones that said, we'll put our time into this. We'll put our effort into the soup kitchen. And to be sure, the reason why they do that, why they're so eager to serve in that way is is because many of them think that their salvation is tied up with what they do. But we who actually have salvation, full and free in Jesus, shouldn't we be all the more eager to serve, to volunteer, to help, And shouldn't we be eager to make the soup kitchens and the food banks places where the soul can be fed as well? So would you think about changing that sort of cultural shift and being a part of it, moving back to the Christians who have the gospel being the ones who lead out in all of these social ministries? Let me give you a few places here in Cincinnati you could volunteer. City Gospel Mission. Talk to Keith about that. Pregnancy Care of Cincinnati. I think many of you know about them. They serve the poor in a very unique way. Abba's Living Water is based here and serves the poor in Nigeria by bringing water to them. There are tons of things you could do right here in Cincinnati to help that ministry. And then there's Operation Christmas Child where you can volunteer your time here on November the 20th, Friday night at 7 But you can also, it may be too late this year to do it, but you can also volunteer from year to year at one of their distribution centers around the country helping get all these gifts onto skids and onto airplanes and sent out to Senegal or Ecuador or wherever it may be. So give your time to serving the poor. Fourthly, you can feed the poor by befriending them. Just by befriending some needy person around you. Do you remember Luke 14:13? When you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Just invite them. I mean, give them the food, but more important than that is your time, your fellowship, your friendship. And you might pray that God would give you an opportunity to put that Luke 14:13 into practice. Maybe this Thanksgiving, maybe this Christmas with that family in your neighborhood that we mentioned or that beggar that's always coming around. Invite them over. Or if you see the guy on the street who's asking, saying, I need money for food, and you say, I'm going to offer him food, pull over and say, let's go over here to this Burger King and I'll sit and I'll eat with you. And just visit with him and talk with him and share the Lord with him and share a meal with him. Feed the poor by befriending them. Fifthly. Feed the poor by giving. That's the most obvious. Feed the poor by giving. Now, there are a number, and I'm sure you know this already, but there are a number of Bible-believing, Christ-centered, gospel-loving ministries to the poor, both in our country and abroad, that you could lend your support to. Let me just mention a few. I've jotted them down or typed them out here. I'm going to give you this when we finish. But let me just mention them to you. Samaritan's Purse. They're the ones that do the Christmas shoe boxes, but their bigger year-long ministry is actually to go into war-torn countries and countries that have had natural disasters and provide food and shelter and blankets and relief and the gospel. And some of you could give to them both at Christmas time and through the year and especially when there's a need like the disaster in Myanmar and disasters that happen all the time all over the world. They are there. Compassion International Some of you know them as well. They are an organization that partners with local churches in the third world and allows you to send money to help that local church provide education and food help and clothing and the gospel and discipleship to that child. You get an actual child, a picture of their face, their name, information about their family, where they live, and you sponsor them. It's $45 a month, and some local church in their village or in their city will be providing for them all of these things. It's a great thing. They actually um, have a compassion uh, center kind of campus at the church where we teach in Ethiopia. It's a good ministry. Abba's Living Water, I mentioned already. You can volunteer, you can give trying to raise money to give people water in Jesus' name that they don't have, and they die all the time because they're drinking dirty water, the only water they can get. Charles mentioned last year, around this time, World Vision and their Christmas catalog. Some of you may have gotten that in the mail. Um, You can also look at it online. World Vision is another Christian ministry that works in the third world among the poor, and one of the things they do at Christmas is they give out these catalogs where you can buy seeds for a family or a sheep or a cow or fruit trees or chickens or ducks or llamas or bicycles. And the point of all of that stuff is so that this third world family who probably lives where Proverbs 13.23 is a daily reality. So that some third world family cannot just have a sheep or a llama but have that sheep or llama to help them earn a living. The idea is if the family lives in an area where they need to transport goods to the market to earn a living, they give them a llama so that they can transport the goods. Or they give them chickens so that they can have eggs to eat and so on. And so in giving to them, you're actually giving something to that person that's enabling them to actually earn a living. You're giving them dignity. You're giving the opportunity to work and perhaps for them to earn enough to help others as well. So World Vision would be a great place for you to give to. And finally, in this list, The Voice of the Martyrs. It's an organization that provides food and clothing and supplies and protection primarily to families who, because one or both parents were killed for their faith in Jesus, the children are orphans or the wife is a widow and so on, and they have no way to support themselves, and Voice of the Martyrs comes in and supports them, and you can give to them as well. I'll give you information on all of these, but just kind of a, a word of encouragement. What if each of us spent half of our Christmas stash giving to one of these things or to some other way of relieving the poor? What if some of us gave all of that Christmas stash to these things and said, this would be a lot more fun this would be a lot more useful and it would be a lot more honoring to god in the end i'll tell you however much you may decide to spend half or all or a fourth or whatever it may be every year when we take our kids to the store to shop for the operation christmas child that's their favorite thing i think about christmas gifts is getting to go pick out those gifts for those children on the other side of the world so your children won't begrudge you I don't think. I can't guarantee that. But your children hopefully won't begrudge you for saying, let's go shopping instead of some other thing. So feed the poor by giving. Finally, under this category, and then before just one final word, feed the theologically poor. We're talking about applications of how we can help the poor. And I want to point out to you that there are people in the world for whom it's not just bread that they're missing. But they're missing Jesus, the bread who came down from heaven. And isn't that most important? Isn't that the worst kind of poverty? Just imagine for a moment how poor you would be without Jesus. In fact, you can't imagine it, can you? Because you're not without Jesus. And you've grown up in a country where even before you knew Jesus and before you trusted Jesus, you lived with people all around you who know him. And this is a, a, that's why we're in the bubble we're in is because for so long people in our country have known Jesus, known God's Word, and lived at least somewhat accordingly. And that's why it's so good to be here. We can't even imagine what it's like to be somewhere where Jesus' name is not even known. Think about then the hundreds of groups of people around the world, tribes that are separated off from surrounding tribes by their culture or their geography or their language, where the gospel has never, ever come. That would be a good place to spend your Christmas stash as well. And then among those tribes where the gospel has come, the churches in many cases are rife with false teaching and... Many times they're lacking pastors and when they do have pastors often those pastors are untrained so that if we can continue to use the eating analogy instead of providing the people a full course meal instead of even providing the people a sandwich or a bowl of rice all that they're able to provide for the people theologically because they know so little of the Bible all they're able to give the people is a little bowl of broth and a bowl of broth is better than nothing. But there's more food to be had. You remember, I'm sure, some of you, me telling you the story of the leader. The leader in the denomination in Ethiopia who said to us, I didn't know sin was against God. I just always kind of thought it messed my life up a little bit. I didn't realize I was sinning against God. A leader. That's all he's able to give to the people. Surely Proverbs thirteen twenty three applies to that kind of situation as well. Surely those people are poor too. There is abundant spiritual food in the fallow, inadequately used, and understood, misunderstood Bibles of the poor. There's a lot of food there but it's swept away by injustice. It is swept away often by shallow missionary efforts. And it's swept away when we as God's people don't give as we should and there aren't enough missionaries to go do more and do better than we've done so far. So surely these theologically poor people need our help as well. You're helping a number of them when you give just every week, your normal offering, part of which goes to international missions. You're helping with your Lottie Moon Christmas missions offering that you'll give in December. You're helping when you've supported Pastors Training Institute in Ethiopia and allowed me to go. But there's so much more to do. Let me just give you one place where you could help. If you're saying, the place where I want to give, the place where I want to sow my seeds and spend my money is among the theologically support theologically poor. The best organization I know of is called HeartCry Missionary Society. You can find them on the web, heartcrymissionary.org. But what they do is they go into the third world and they find local pastors who are in need of training and then who are in need of support so that they can give their full time to studying and to ministry. And they help these local men. That's all they do is help local men to be prepared, rightly prepared for ministry. Help the theologically poor as well. So the bottom line here is evening is this. There is abundant food, physical food and theological food, in the fallow ground of the poor. There are, Solomon is saying, plenty of ways for people to get what they need. There are plenty of ways to help, and plenty of people to help, and plenty of people here to do the helping. And though you cannot do everything that I've mentioned tonight, you can do something. You can pick one or two or three perhaps of these things or other ways of helping that you know about and pour your time and your prayers and your effort and your spending into these poor people and look forward to worshiping around Jesus' throne with them in heaven. Now a concluding word um, that may be kind of bouncing around in the back of your minds. I realize in saying this and spending a whole evening talking about helping the poor and a whole evening encouraging you to give, that some of you personally and, and for our church really as a whole might be thinking, this seems like a hard time to be giving to the poor. We kind of feel like the poor maybe sometimes when we're struggling a little bit, and we may feel like that as a church right now as we get ready to look at our budget for the new year. So you may say to yourself, this seems maybe not like the best time for this message. But I want you to listen as we close to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. In fact, just turn there to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is urging the Corinthians to give to the poor. He's taking up a collection to help poor Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. And several churches have helped him already, and he's trying to urge the Corinthian church to help as well. And in doing that, he points the Corinthians to another church, namely the church in Macedonia, and says, let me show you what they did. And that's where we'll read, beginning in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 8, 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now hear that well. These people, these Macedonians, verse 2, really couldn't give. I mean, if someone just had looked at it from the outside, maybe even Paul himself, if they would have just laid out the books for him, he would have said, you know, you really can't give to this special offering. They were poor. They were in deep poverty, verse 2. And yet, they gave. And not only did they give, but they did so with joy in verse 2. They did so liberally in verse 2. They did so even beyond their ability in verse 3. They gave more than they could afford to give. And then in verse 4, he tells us that they begged for the opportunity to give. I don't know what's behind that, but perhaps Paul was saying, "Wait, wait, 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 you guys are poor, you're struggling, this is too much. Sometimes you're tempted to say that. This is too much. Maybe that's what was going on. And they said, no, please, please let us give. We beg you to let us participate in this opportunity to support the saints. Are we begging to give? Are we willing to give sacrificially? That's what the Macedonians did. They're the greatest example of giving in the Bible outside of God who gave his son. And don't you know that God blessed them for this? Don't you think? You think God just kind of let them give more than they could afford, saw His people suffering in poverty, they begged to give, they gave with joy, they gave abundantly, they gave more than they could afford. You think God just kind of said, well, dumb decision, I'm going to let them starve and teach them a lesson. No. Surely God didn't allow that. Surely God blessed their efforts and repaid their efforts. And so if you struggle to give... Give what the Lord tells you to give and surely He will bless your efforts and repay yours as well.